Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus Podcast, brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health, market research, and consulting. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Today is another episode of Femtech with Dr. Britt. Every month, I'll be taking a deep dive into a specific fem health topic. So if you enjoyed today's topic, let us know. If you have another topic you'd like us to uh, focus on, let us know. Drop. I'm also doing this right now on Instagram Live. So um, I don't know whether you're listening right now on Spotify. Just know that we are also very active on social media. And if you love this content, give us a follow. So... Join me as I explore everything from menopause to mental health, separating facts from fiction, and empowering women to take control of their health and well-being. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn about Femtech with moi. In today's episode, I'll be taking us on a history ride, the History of Revitalization Act of 1993. This is a policy that brought women back to clinical trials. So females of reproductive age were banned at one point, and the Revitalization Act in 1993 brought them back. June 2023 makes 30 years. In fact, today I'm recording on the anniversary, which is huge. That's a big day. Today's 30 years of females of reproductive age being back in clinical trials. And we're going to talk today about why that is so, so critical. So 30 years ago, the Revitalization Act was passed. And we'll be deep diving into the history of women in clinical trials, finding out more about the scandal that led to our removal in the first place, and the long-term consequences that occurred as a result. We'll also be looking at what the Revitalization Act was, what changes have been made, and what is it looking like today for females in clinical trials. This is a huge opportunity to learn more about the history of women in clinical trials. And don't forget, we'll be talking about this in deep, deep detail at our Revitalization Summit, which the day that this airs is the same day as the conference. So if you are listening this to this today via the podcast, not Instagram Live, June 28th and Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern is when our Revitalization Act, um, Act, excuse me, Summit is happening. It's virtual and there are still tickets available. So get yours now. Just pause this and jump over there. All right. Enjoy the episode. All right. The first thing we're going to jump into today is what is thalidomide in the story about this drug and how it is important for understanding the context of females in or not in clinical trials. So there's this drug called thalidomide. It's a medication originally developed in the late 1950s, early 1960s by a German pharmaceutical company called Grenithal. And it was prescribed for a range of conditions, including pneumonia, colds, and flu, and nausea, often experienced in early pregnancy, so morning sickness. Early testing of the drug, researchers at the company found that it was virtually impossible to give an animal a lethal dose of this drug. 
based on that test alone, the drug was deemed harmless to humans. So again, in the 1950s and 1960s, they literally just gave as much drug as possible to an animal. And if it didn't die, they said, well, then, damn, it must be safe for humans. That was the current state. And that's like not that long ago. So that was how we used to do clinical trials. No tests were done on for thalidomide on pregnant women, which actually today is uh, still a common practice to not test things on pregnant women before approving it for distribution. So that still needs work going on. But yeah, no tests on pregnant women at the time. In the 1950s, scientists did not know that the effects of a drug could be passed through the placental barrier and harm a fetus in the womb. So the use of medications during pregnancy was not strictly controlled. Thalidomide was licensed in July 1956 for over-the-counter sale in Germany for morning sickness. It was a treatment for morning sickness, which again is nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, and it can happen at any time, day or night, often brought on by smelling certain odors or tasting certain foods, most common in the first three months of pregnancy and more common in cases of twins and triplets. Approximately two-thirds of women experience nausea and vomiting during the first trimester of pregnancy. Not known exactly what causes morning sickness, which, by the way, when we in my team were uh, studying the facts for this episode, we could not believe that still today there's a hypothesis as to what morning sickness is. Still no fact, like proven out, this is what it is. And so here's some of the things that we we found in the hypothesis that uh, scientists currently hold. But in today's current literature, they still have emotional stress or fatigue as potentially the cause of morning sickness. Emotional stress and fatigue. If I ha- threw up every morning because of how emotionally stressed and fatigued I was, we'd all have morning sickness. So that's a crazy, crazy potential excuse as to why we have it. But some other ones are that uh, they hypothesize potentially morning sickness is linked to the increase in hormone levels, which quickly rise during those first few weeks of pregnancy. So just kind of like feeling irregular and balanced. Uh, Another thought was low blood sugar during early pregnancies causing this vomiting. Again, emotional stress and fatigue, which seems crazy. Um, but here is actually the study that I found to be m- most significant and honestly to me as a evolutionary geneticist made the most sense. And so symptoms peak when the embryonic organogenesis, so the little, the little tiny fetus, not even a fetus yet, it's like a little clump of cells, it's super susceptible to chemical disruptions, those first six to 18 weeks. Women who experience morning sickness are significantly less likely to miscarry than women who do not. So nine out of nine studies showed that women who experience morning sickness have less likely chance of having a miscarriage than women who don't have morning sickness, which I found really interesting. And it really speaks to potentially what this cause could be. Women who vomit suffer fewer miscarriages than those who experience nausea alone. Also really interesting. So if you actually vomited, you have a decreased chance of miscarriage versus just feeling nauseous. Many pregnant women have aversions to alcohol and uh, non-alcoholic drinks, mostly caffeinated beverages, and strong testing vegetables, especially during the first trimester. The greatest aversions, though, are to meat, fish, poultry, and eggs. And why is this? Well, they did a cross-cultural analysis, and they revealed in 20 traditional societies around the world, morning sickness has been observed in seven of them predominantly. And so actually there's a, based on your diet, you have a more or less likely chance of vomiting in early pregnancy. So white women, Caucasian women are more likely
likely to have morning sickness than black or Asian women. And the reason they think that is, is because of either the significant use of animal products in their diet. The more animal products you have, the more likely you are to have morning sickness. If you have more plants like corn, then you have less morning sickness. Animal products may be dangerous to pregnant women and their embryos because they often contain parasites. Well, potentially not anymore, but they used to often contain parasites and pathogens, especially when the food was stored at room temperatures in warm climates. Avoiding foodborne microorganisms is particularly important to pregnant women because they are immunosuppressed during the uh, beginning stages of pregnancy so that their body doesn't think that the embryo is a foreign body. Microorganisms can potentially cause that woman to be incredibly sick, have a deadly infection, and rejects the tissue of her offspring. So scientists hypothesize that morning sickness causes women to avoid foods that might be dangerous to themselves or the embryo, especially foods prior to widespread refrigeration that were likely to have been heavily laden with microorganisms and their toxins. So we just learned about morning sickness uh, and potentially the reason behind it. So next time you or your partner is vomiting through your nose in the morning, just know that you are evolutionarily um, equipped <laughs> to potentially reproduce. Um, so why are we talking about all this? All right. So with thalidomide, thalidomide really helped treating morning sickness. All right. So back to the thalidomide clinical trials, if you forgot <laughs> what we were talking about today. All right. Let's talk about thalidomide. How is it distributed and produced? By the mid-1950s, 14 pharmaceutical companies were marketing thalidomide in 46 countries under at least 37 different trade names. So that's really important because the number of different names that thalidomide came out under made it really hard to retract it from the market because there were so many different brands that it was being sold under. U.S. FDA initially did not approve thalidomide for marketing and distribution. Pharmacologist Francis Oldham Kelsey turned down several requests from Grenethal, the pharmaceutical company in Germany that was producing thalidomide, who did not seem to provide clinical evidence to refute reports of patients who developed nerve damage in their limbs after long-term thalidomide use. So essentially, the U.S. didn't approve it because they had some people with some nerve damage and the pharma company wasn't able to produce data as to why or proving that it was or not them. Uh, despite this, though, over 2.5 million tablets were distributed in the United States to over 1,000 physicians, and at least 17 children were consequently born in the United States with thalidomide-associated deformities. Yeah, we're going to get into that part, all right? Uh, thalidomide was widely used in the UK, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, but not the US. Thalidomide tragedy. Back then, scientists did not know the effects of the drug could be passed through the placental barrier and harm the fetus in the womb. So the use of the medications during pregnancy was not strictly controlled, as we said. And in this case, thalidomide had no tests involving pregnant women, and yet that was the predominant patient for the drug. And unfortunately, the drug did pass through the placenta, and it caused severe birth defects for thousands of babies whose mothers took the drug during pregnancy. Pregnant women took the drug, gave birth to babies with limb abnormalities such as shortened or missing limbs, as well as other developmental issues. Uh, internal organs, including the brain, were damaged. Eyesight, hearing could all be affected. There was malformation of hands and digits, damage to ears and eyes, sensory impairment, facial disfigurement and palsy, damage to the brain, internal organs, and skeletal structure. So really, really just severe and heartbreaking effects of this drug on, on the baby. And it was hard to pinpoint the exact cause or fatalities 
It's difficult to find accurate figure on the number of babies born with thalidomide damage, as many were not carried full term. Some were stillborn or some died very soon after birth, and it is widely believed that as many as 100,000 babies were affected by the drug in total. It is generally estimated that over 10,000 babies were born worldwide. Around 50% of them died within months of being born, uh, and those who did survive live with the impacts. The number of affected infants vary depending on different sources and specific criteria used to define the thalidomide-related cases. It took five years for the connection between thalidomide taken by pregnant women and the impact on their children was made. So five years of this being in the market. The first time the link between thalidomide and its impact on development was made public was in a letter published in The Lancet uh, from an Australian doctor, William McBride, in 1961. The drug was traded under so many names in 49 countries that it was hard for even that story to really get across the whole world for everyone to know what drug they're even talking about. Even after the drug was formally withdrawn by Grenethal, the pharmaceutical company in Germany, in 1961, it remained in many medicine cabinets under different names. Um, additionally, we have uh, an American Brit, not me, <laughs> the, the nationality Brit on our team, Megan Fuller. And she says that in the UK, they do a lot of talking and information and education on the thalidomide um, tragedy. And she said one of the big issues that they learned about in terms of when they try to get the drug back off the market was that so many women had um, used that drug for their first pregnancy and did not finish the bottle and traded it with their girlfriends. And so friends, girlfriends of theirs were had it still in their cabinets for years after it was retracted from the market. All right. So that pharmaceutical company. Grenethal was receiving numerous reports of thalidomide's toxic effect on the nervous system. However, company officials stepped up its promotional campaign to sustain income as thalidomide was proving to be incredibly lucrative. So there is a scandal in here, y'all. This isn't just like medicine gone wrong, like because of us not knowing about placental barriers and, you know, the effects on early fetal development. This was also a scandal because even after it was revealed, the pharmaceutical company did not immediately retract it. In fact, they increased their marketing almost to kind of, I, in my mind, it's like, this is not fact, this is my opinion, ring out those last dollars. And, you know, it almost kind of seems like that's what they were doing. So super messed up. And honestly, kind of a data point for why women's healthcare is just abysmal and needs so much support and just restructuring because only, what is this? Um... You know, y'all, you know, I still think 30 years is <laughs> 1990. Uh, so, yeah, like 50 years ago, we knew that pregnant women were having dead or just weren't babies and they increased their marketing budget. So let that just sink in. All right. The after effects. The drug was formally withdrawn by the pharmaceutical company on November 26, 1961. The first public knowledge was the Lancet article, though, December 16, 1961. Although it was withdrawn from distribution, it wasn't properly withdrawn from sale because it was still available over the counter in many places. Uh, so it wasn't allowed to be prescribed by doctors, but was still being sold, which is insane. The Thalidomide Society was formed in 1962 by parents of children affected by the drug. The aim was to provide mutual support and social network and to seek compensation. Fewer than 3,000 people survived as of today from the thalidomide tragedy. Currently, 436 people in the UK are affected by thalidomide. 
1968, Brennethal was brought to trial in Germany. Oh, wow. It's still around today. It was founded in 1946 by a former Nazi partner member. Oh, my gosh. This pharmaceutical company was founded by a Nazi. Grenethal was the first company to introduce penicillin in the post-war era in the German market. So the company settled the case out of court and arrangements were made to compensate victims. No one was ever found guilty of any crimes. Oh my goodness. Initially, no compensation was paid to the UK. However, in 1968, following a legal battle with their families, compensation was paid to 62 thalidomide-affected children born in the UK. Uh, decades of legal battles continue. As recently as 2014, a case was brought against them for disabilities caused by thalidomide. So this is still happening. Thalidomide, by the way, by the way, didn't realize this. Today, thalidomide is still used. But don't worry, it's used for the treatment of myeloma, a certain type of cancer that starts in the bone marrow, and also a treatment for Hansen's disease, once known as leprosy. All right, so... Here's this crazy story. Here's this tragedy. Um, you know, why why am I bringing this up in the Revitalization Act Summit Day episode? So let's see what unfolded after this happened. So you needed to know that background. So the consequences of this was that it forced governments and medical authorities to review their pharmaceutical licensing policies. Drugs intended for human use could no longer be approved purely based on animal testing. Huge, very important part. Drug trials for substances marketed to pregnant women had to provide evidence that we were safe for use in pregnancy. And so that's why you see all the pharmaceutical company commercials today saying, if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, ask your doctor. It's because they didn't do the testing. So they're passing the buck. They're passing the responsibility off to your physician, which, by the way, they have no other additional information than the pharma company did. So, uh, But that's interesting. So that rule came into play. So how did the U.S. FDA respond to this incident? What rules did they pass? Um, and how did they move forward with women in research? All right. Let's look at a history of clinical trials in the United States. First, 1938, the Food and Drug Act requires that drugs be shown to be safe before marketing. Hmm. 1938, that seems fair. 1947, uh, Neumerberg Code of the International Code of Ethics states that informed consent is required in experiments. Experiments must be scientifically necessary and conducted by qualified personnel. Human trials should be preceded by animal studies and surveys of a disease's natural history. Benefit to science must be weighed against the risk and suffering of experimental subjects. So, all right, we're starting to get some ethics involved. 1949, International Code of Methical Ethics, including the Declaration of the Geneva Code, a physician shall always bear in mind the obligation of preserving human life. The health of the patient shall be the physician's first consideration. A physician shall act only in the patient's best interest. 1953, the NIH Clinical Center Policy, ethical responsibilities for medical experiments lies with the study's principal investigator. So your PI, principal investigator, that's who has the ethical responsibility to make sure the research is ethical and following all these rules. Another 1953, NIH Medical Board Document Number 1, ethical responsibility for developing policies of medical care in the clinical setting. 1962, the U.S. Congress passed the Kefauver-Harris Amendments to the 1938 Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, which, by the way, that was the FDA, <laughs> Food and Drug and Cosmetics. 
uh, which required new drugs to be deemed safe. It had to pass animal testing. The new amendments imposed guidelines for a process of drug approval that any sponsor of a drug, usually a company that planned to investigate that drug clinically, had to provide the FDA with detailed outline of the study. Information concerning preclinical studies, number of qualified investigators, the nature of the study. The sponsor must monitor the progress of the study, continually report on its findings. The FDA required that the drug be safe as well as effective before it is approved and marketed, had to pass subject testing as well. And so all of this is like just the groundwork for today's current medical and ethical guidelines for how we should research humans. 1975, National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects in Biomedical and Behavioral Research creates a new rule about protecting, and this is very important, so if you just kind of like zoned out, zoomed back in, 1975, National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects in Biomedical and Behavioral Research creates a new rule, protecting vulnerable research subjects, and they listed pregnant women as a vulnerable research subject. Fair, but why is this important? Well, because two years later, 1977, the FDA instituted a policy so the NIH or National Commission, I don't know what the National Commission is under, NIH or FDA, it doesn't matter. 1977, the FDA instituted a policy recommending that scientists and researchers exclude women of childbearing potential from phase one or phase two of drug trials. So you could only be participating in clinical trials if you are a woman on contraception in the 1970s, single, or your husband was vasectomized. And this was driven by concerns, ethical concerns, like pretty recent, reasonable reasons to be afraid because 1961, only 10 years earlier, was when the thalidomide case blew up, right? So this all kind of makes sense. And it's not like they were like, we hate women. They really wanted to protect women. They were driven by the concern about ethical issues of possible fetal exposure to experimental subjects. Variability in hormonal status in women was also a concern at the time that they didn't know how to really extrapolate those results. From, from females versus males based on our hormone cycle. So again, this is like not scientists hating women. It's trying to make good policies. You know, the reason I'm going through all this is because trying to show you like every year they were like, huh, what about this group? Huh, what about that group? Maybe we should consider this, maybe, right? So they're just trying to figure it out. So what happened between 1977 and 1993 where females of reproductive capacity, which by the way, so are single women, (laughs) what happened to women's health during that time? Well, many developments led to the questioning of the exclusion of females from clinical trials. So here's an example. The AIDS epidemic, clinical trials explicitly solicited only males. It became increasingly evident, though, that HIV and AIDS affects females very differently than males. Females have unique physiology, hormones, and social factors that influence the disease progression, treatment response, and overall health outcomes. The exclusion of females from clinical trials limited their access to potential treatments and interventions. Clinical trials are essential for testing the safety and efficacy of new drugs and therapies. Excluding females meant that they were often left with limited treatment options as medications and dosages were primarily determined based on the studies conducted predominantly in males. 1985, the Public Health Service Task Force on Women's Health Issues shined a light on this issue and shined a light on the changing role of women in society in 1980s. 
And they issued a a women's health report on the Public Health Service Task Force, highlighting the need for research in women and concluded that the historical lack of research focus on women's health concerns has compromised our entire healthcare system. Thank you, whoever wrote that in 1985. We're still preaching that today. Uh, The quality of human health information available to women was limited and just unacceptable. 1986. So remember, 1977 is when females' reproductive age were banned. So now we're almost 10 years out. 1986. NIH establishes a policy that encourages researchers to include women in studies. And if they don't include women, they just have to say why. So in 1986, they're like, okay, maybe women should be included. But like, we'll just give uh, researchers the option. And if they don't, they can just tell us why they did it. And that should be fine. Well, in 1988, so now 11 years post-ban, FDA guideline for the format and content of clinical trials and statistical section of a new drug specifies that the importance of examining the data within the databases based on sex and gender. So this is the first time in 1988 that the FDA gave some guidelines, so some suggestions saying, hey, by the way, if you do have people of different sexes in your study, you should probably separate that data and analyze it separately. Well, guess what? In 1990, the General Accountability Office conducted an investigation into the NIH's implementation of these guidelines for the inclusion of women. So now we have four years. So in 1986, they're like, maybe you should include women. Just let us know if you don't. 1988, they're like, if you do include women, you should probably separate their data, analyze it separately. So 1990, four years after these suggestions, this General Accountability Office says, hey, we're going to like deep dive, see how people are actually following these. Well, They found that the policy was very poorly communicated and very inconsistently applied, only pertained to research that was NIH funded, and the NIH had done little to encourage researchers to analyze the study results by sex. So they had put out these guidelines, but no one really read them or did them. So a few months later, 1990, the NIH establishes the Office of Research for Women's Health. Y'all, if you are not subscribed to the Office of Research for Women's Health, that is the closest thing we have in the United States to Institute for Women's Health. It is an amazing program. I love their content. I love their events. Um, Amazing organization. They launched the Women's Health Initiative. So a set of clinical trials and observational studies that together enrolled more than 150,000 postmenopausal women over a period of 15 years, and they designed tests to look at the effects of hormone replacement therapy, diet modification, calcium, vitamin D supplements on heart disease, fractures, breast, and colorectal cancer. And unfortunately, in this study, they did come out saying that they found that hormone replacement therapy increases your risk for breast cancer in postmenopausal women. Now, keep in mind, y'all, that that is, from my understanding, it was a lack of data at that time and a misunderstanding of the data. And so hormone replacement therapy is, in fact, safe. There are some circumstances where it is not safe based on your genetic disposition to breast cancer and different other conditions that you may be experiencing. But overall, unfortunately, that was not a good finding that they published because they've later reversed it, but the damage is done. And now women are afraid of HRT. Let's keep going. That's another episode. (laughs) Between 1989 and 1993, so this is when all this like, oh, crap, no one's actually including women, even though we suggested it. Oh, my gosh, we're doing this like study. Now we have an Office of Women's Health Research. Inclusion of women in clinical research was NIH policy, but it was not law until 1993. So in 1989, 1993, it was a policy that no one really followed. 1993 becomes law. 
Congress wrote the NIH inclusion policy into the federal law through the section of the NIH Revitalization Act of 1993 titled Women and Minorities as Subjects in Clinical Research, which reversed the 1977 guidance of not including females of reproductive age in clinical trials. Which, by the way, you notice how often they switch gender and sex here. These are these are like copied and pasted titles of these laws. They they're mixing gender and sex so interchangeably. It's it's insane, actually. It's it's missing the point. We're missing the point. We don't have breasts because we're women. We have breasts because we're female, right? We wear typically wear makeup because we're women, right? Uh, because society says that is your gender based on your sex, and therefore here's your societal expectation. So, anyways, again, another episode. <laughs> so, all right, what does this revitalization act? do? Well, it requires the NIH ensures that women and minorities are included in all clinical research. In trials, including women and minorities, the trial should be designed and carried out so that it is possible to analyze whether the variables being studied affect women and minorities differently than other participants. Cost is not an acceptable reason for excluding women and minorities. And lastly, NIH initiates programs and support for outreach efforts to recruit and retain women and minorities and their subpopulations as volunteers in clinical studies. So that was the Revitalization Act. 1994, Office of Women's Health established at the FDA, the OWH, Office of Women's Health. Uh, has two overarching goals. One, to protect and advance the health of women through policy, science, and outreach. And two, to advocate for the participation of women in clinical trials for sex, gender, and subpopulation analysis. The FDA Office of Women's Health partners with other government agencies and national groups to reach uh, both scientific and healthcare advancements. So, in 1994, there was a report called Women in Health Research, and it called attention to two forms of historical gender bias in design, implementation, and clinical trials. The first bias was that pregnant women have historically been excluded, and the second bias is that women of childbearing potential denied the same autonomy around decisions to volunteer as a research subject. So that's really interesting. There's a few other regulations here that I just don't feel like is necessary for you to understand. And it's just me reading names of legal documents and years. So all I'll say is that up through 2010, they continued to have these reports coming out saying, this is really important. Sex and gender are important variables. We need to include this. It is not safe to say this is safe without knowing if it's safe for them. And so honestly, I feel like we are on time and on the timeline and on track to be innovating for women's health based on this historical and this timeline. So considering that we didn't know sex and gender had effects on health only 40, 50 years ago, the fact that now that we're making and having whole industries focused on female health, it's obviously way behind track. It should be here sooner, but we really are kind of on track on the timeline. And so I'll end our episode today talking about where we're at today with females in clinical trials. First, women are less likely to be aware of or participate in clinical trials. There are various reasons contributing to the lack of participation, not only for women, but also minorities. And those include one, past history of unethical research and apprehension and cynicism towards clinical trials may exist in these communities. Um, the transportation capabilities to travel to and from research facilities may complicate the ability to participate in the trial, especially for those in rural areas. 
Subjects may find that taking the time to partake in these trials may interfere with both family and work obligations. Uh, There's also this thing called subject burden, where the constant travel and testing may be exhausting to the enrollees. Financial burden, such as poverty or low-income status, may limit subjects, especially minorities. Furthermore, there is an extra challenge with the addition of diversity in clinical trials in terms of communication and cultural attitudes. So, you know, speaking to a Black woman or a Latina woman or a Muslim woman or a Jewish woman, all of those cultures, languages, races may come with different expectations of that woman from the healthcare system. So researchers need to address these challenges and utilize available tools to facilitate the enrollment of females in clinical trials. And here are some of the bigger suggestions for how we can do better. First is logistics. Clinical trials may need to open at flexible hours or have follow-up in the patient's home. People who are participating perform those follow-up tests in their home rather than at the clinic. Child care or transportation could be offered or reimbursed through an IRB approval. So that's that process of submitting your research to the government for them to approve that it's ethical and good. Reaching out to women through the IRB approved advertising in places such as salons, gyms, stores, laundromats, churches. By the way, I found that like somewhat accurate, a little offensive, like salons and stores and laundromats. Like, okay, I guess that's where we go and do our chores. But where else do women hang out that isn't just, you know, childcare and and home responsibilities? Anyways, diverse staff uh, for clinical trials, if you can recruit them and made that staff aware of the distinct need for clinical trials for women. So diverse staff with the knowledge of the importance of females participating is important. And lastly, additional time should be allotted to review informed consent for women considering enrolling clinical trials. Their contribution should be acknowledged and feedback should be gathered from women at the conclusion of the trial to inform future efforts, i.e. listen to women. All right, y'all, that is the history of the Revitalization Act. Today, I took you on a journey from learning about morning sickness and thalidomide and the thalidomide scandal. And then we went through the history of the U.S. FDA and NIH policies around females in clinical trials building on itself up until today, where we still struggle to have females in clinical trials. But we know that technology is advancing this, remote monitoring, uh, digital clinical trials, There's a lot of different strategies today to get more females involved. And so let me know what you thought of today's episode and uh, what did you learn? What was the most shocking fact? And why don't you share it with a friend and leave us a review? All right, everyone, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. (laughs) 